0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Let me pray, and then we are going to jump in. If you are new here... Our normal pattern is that we teach through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible. Uh, We just kind of go verse by verse through them. Uh, I'm going to be doing that some in the series. I'll be doing that next week, for instance. But in this series, we've got a couple of messages that are more thematic in nature. So if you have a Bible or device, keep it handy because I'm going to have you looking at a lot of different scriptures today. We're going to start in Genesis 1, but we're going to cover a number of other verses uh, as well. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, we are grateful uh, to you for the grace uh, that you have extended to us in Jesus. Thank you for uh, the salvation that we've received. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the new life. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. Uh, thank you for uh, all that you've done with us, for us, joining us to your people. Um, so we're... Very grateful, Lord. And as we look at your word tonight on this most important topic, we pray that you would just give us uh, real clarity. Uh, We pray that you would speak to us in a way that would be meaningful and life-changing. I I pray for those who find this subject discouraging. I pray for those who find this subject painful to discuss because of their past. Uh, I pray for those in the room who are enslaved to some type of sexual sin or temptation, that you would grant them hope and freedom uh, tonight as well. And Lord, we just confess, we all need you. So come, Lord Jesus, and help us and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I started last week uh, on the theme uh, on a series called Redeeming Sex. I wanted to recommend a couple of books, several books that I've read um, in preparation for this. First series. I never read anything by any of these authors before this series, and I found all these uh, super helpful. The first one is called "The Meaning of Sex: Christian Ethics and the Moral Life" by Dennis Hollinger. I'm going to have quote him a couple times tonight. Uh, this is a very good book, and he he talks in it about the uh, the very uh, purposes of sex, which is what I'm talking about tonight. Uh, he's an academic. It's somewhat academic, but it's accessible. If, you're, if you've read Christian books and literature, you, you'd probably be okay with it, I think. So it's a, it's a very good one. Here's a little bit easier version of the same theme called, What is the Meaning of Sex? So this is the Meaning of Sex. This is What is the Meaning? This is by Denny Burke. Uh, he is in Louisville at uh, Boyce College and, um Southern Seminary, and uh, he's written, this is super accessible, easy to follow, and easy to understand, and this book is called Marriage, Sex in the Service of God. By Christopher Ashe. He's a British author. Sex and the Service of God, which is somewhat what I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, how that all of life is to be lived for the Lord, including our sex lives. So I'll maybe put these up on the city so you can access them through there. But just as you're looking for some material to read, I found all of these uh, very, very helpful. Well, I can't review what I taught last week in totality, but let me give you at least a highlight. Tonight is a part two of last week's message. And I explained that we were kind of going through in this series a biblical theology of sex. So we're starting with the creation, and that that would be Genesis 1 and 2, and looking at sex before the fall, and what God created sex to be in a perfect world. So we looked at that last week, and then uh, we're going to talk about the fall, that's Genesis 3, when... when mankind falls into sin and the effects of the fall on our sexuality. So that's what I'm going to talk about next week. And then Genesis three also promises the coming of Christ that, uh, that the, uh, that, uh, that God would send one who would bruise the serpents. That's Jesus. Jesus comes to do a work of redemption in our lives. And Christ is redeeming all of our lives, include, including our sex lives, our sexuality. And so we talked about how uh, we're going to talk about, um, the theme of redeemed sexuality. What does it mean to grow and to be conformed more to the image of Christ in this part of our lives, our thought lives? Um, our speech and our and our actions, the uh, uh, sex within marriage as well. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to look a little bit at Song of Songs uh, in a couple of weeks and uh, look at that as well. One of the big points, um, I don't usually recommend going back and listening to messages necessarily, but I really would recommend you listen to last week if you weren't here because last week's message sets a trajectory for this series both in tone uh, I was very, very deliberate in the tone of the message. Um, and I really tried to make the point that this series is not about anybody out there. My primary concern is not with sex and the culture and the sexuality of the culture and the direction of the culture. That is not my concern. My, or it's not my primary concern. It's concern. It's not my primary concern. Uh, my primary concern is for the church. And my primary concern is for the Lord to do a work of repentance and freedom and life change in us. Uh, Tim Keller, a respected pastor in New York City, who's done a lot of study on revival, was asked, What do you think hinders revival in the United States? And uh, his answer was, you know, who really knows? That's in the mind of the Lord. But his answer was, uh, immorality in the church. Uh, that really the sex lives of believers, professing believers in the church, is probably the greatest hindrance. It's probably that or our money. Right? Sex and money are the two areas that we're likely uh, to uh, to be tempted in, and, and oftentimes to fall in. So we we want to uh, we don't want to be worried about those people out there. We are those people. We are all affected by the fall. And if our attitude is what about those people, then we have sexual self-righteousness that needs to be dealt with. Uh, So we talked about all of that last week. And then last week I introduced the question, what is the purpose of sex? Because that's a question we don't ask a whole lot. What is the purpose of sex? And we looked at one purpose. And I'm going to go through three more purposes tonight and then the ultimate purpose. So last week we talked about the first purpose being consummation or the beginning, or sort of the, the finishing and beginning of the marriage, the, the completion of the marriage covenant. And we looked at uh, Genesis 2, um, where uh, Eve was created for Adam and uh, God said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we talked about they would make a commitment, this, this language of leaving or this language of cleaving, sticking to, holding fast, the ESV says, is covenantal language. It's a covenant, a commitment between God and the couple. So the state can issue a marriage license, but the state cannot uh, oversee a covenant between God and believers. That's, that's what believers do. That's what the church does. And uh, so there is this covenant, which is different than a contract. It's deeper, more profound. Um, and in the covenant of marriage, uh, that the, the two um, sort of demonstrate that they are now one through their sexual union. And we even talked about for the believing couple uh, that really every time they have sexual intercourse, they are uh, sort of reaffirming their covenant whether they think about it or not, uh, we are reaffirming our covenant, and we are growing in our one flesh union, which is not just physical, but is the joining of our entire lives together. So we talked about that, uh, and then I'm going to move on tonight with number two. So the first was consummation and an ongoing developing of that one, one flesh relationship. Number two is procreation, procreation. Look at uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. So as stewards, managers of God's world, the first thing God gives to humanity, the first command to humanity is have babies. That's literally the first thing he says, be fruitful and multiply. I want more of you, not just two of you. I want you to increase. And God's plan is to populate the earth with with children of, of believers, in this case, people that knew him, that would spread his glory and spread his fame, that would worship him, that the glory of the Lord would spread out throughout the earth through generations of people who are raised to know him and to worship and to follow him. So his plan for multiplication is a plan to fill this world with uh, with worshipers of God. And so that is the first thing, have babies. Throughout scripture, children are seen as a blessing of the Lord and uh, and, and a gift from the Lord. And the way you have children, this probably isn't going to be a surprise to anyone. And if so, they should be in the children's ministry and not in here, but uh, and the way you have children is through sexual union, through sexual intercourse. And so, one of the purposes Uh, not the only purpose, or not necessarily even the primary purpose, but one of the purposes is procreation. Now, why am I emphasizing something that's pretty obvious? Because anybody uh, who's had the talk or read a little biology sort of knows this. This is very elementary. However, I believe we are somewhat culturally uh, blinded to this reality. I, I don't know if we realize that throughout history, procreation and sexual intercourse have always been joined ideas. But that is not true in the modern world. Because in the modern world we have reliable means of contraception. And uh, if contraception doesn't work, uh, sadly uh, in our country there is the uh, option of abortion as well. Which, which hinders or stops uh, the process of one hinders, one stops the process of uh, procreation or at least delivering a child as the case may be in the, second, in the second one. So in our culture, procreation is separated from sex. Now tonight's message is not going to be on uh, contraception. Different people have different views about that. Uh, with ethical means of contraception, uh, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I'm not teaching on that tonight, uh, but, and nor am I saying that every uh, sexual act is to, uh, is to be a procreative act either. Uh, I'm not saying that. But there must be an openness to the possibility. In other words, the people who are having sex in God's design should be those who are in a committed marriage where the possibility of having a child, the possibility of procreation would be something that is welcomed, and something that is seen as a core meaning of the sexual relationship. This is one reason why adultery, which is having sex either as a married person or sex with someone who is married, that you're not married to. Adultery and fornication is sex between two people who are not married. Uh, This is why adultery and fornication at one level are forbidden. Because in adultery and fornication, the procreation possibility of the sexual union is totally removed, Uh, usually. I mean, it would be very rare for someone to commit adultery seeking to have a child with the person they're committing adultery with. That's not the goal. You're sleeping with someone who's married to someone else. You're not one to have a child. And so procreation is removed from that relationship. And same with fornication. Two unmarried people, uncommitted people having sex, aren't trying uh, to procreate. So the average young person, college student that's out just hooking up with people uh, is, is not hooking up with this in mind. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's, they're not trying to honor this mandate. They're trying to have sex for other reasons, which I'm coming to in a minute. What are some other purposes of sex? They're trying to capture those purposes of sex without the procreative aspect, which is a part of uh, the reason that God gives sex. Procreation is at, should at least be a possibility as a core purpose of sex. Now, if you were born, I want to make a comment here pastorally, if you were born uh, to an unmarried couple, or if you have a, a child, had a child, have a child outside of marriage, I, I want to make a statement here, and that is that no life is an accident. So if your parents were not married or you had a single parent, raised by a single parent, your, your, your life is not an accident. God has a purpose and a calling for your life. And if you have had a child, you're a single parent, or you had a child outside of marriage, God has a calling and a purpose for that child. If you remember, we were talking about the perfect world, what God created sex for. He creates sex for a married couple in a permanent, committed, covenantal relationship. But we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a fallen world where everyone in the room is a sexual center, at least mentally, at least through uh, lustful desires. Uh, but we all have skewed sexual desires. And so I want to make clear we're all fallen. So the points I'm making here right now are not to bash someone who was raised in a family without a married couple or someone who has had a child. Out of wedlock. That's not. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But I am trying to say that that is. This is God's purpose. And if you are in that place. Either you were raised as a single. Uh, you know, you did not have parents. Two parents, or you've had a kid. God wants you to experience His grace. He does not want you to live in shame. He does not want you to live embarrassed of your history. He wants you to be free by the grace of God and to thoroughly receive, uh, if you've had a child, forgiveness, and if you were that child, to have the shame removed uh, from over your life completely because you are a new creation in Christ and all things are new if you believe in Jesus and come to meet him. So uh, having said all of that, uh, the pro- procreation is a vital purpose within marriage. What about an infertile couple? Or what about a couple that is past their childbearing years? Well, I I don't think the Bible teaches that, you know, every time you have sex, uh, you know, the goal should be necessarily uh, conception, or certainly it doesn't happen that way. And that just that there's more more than one purpose for sex there's more than procreation um, as a purpose for sex as I mentioned earlier one is consummating the marriage and in an ongoing way deepening that one flesh relationship so that's already another one that we've looked at but a couple thoughts about that a couple that has passed their childbearing years in marriage uh, perhaps they've already had children so this would be relevant to there if they already had children uh, then they have they have Uh, had a sexual relationship with procreative fruit, we could say. Um, But at least they're in a relationship that would welcome, were they able physically, that would welcome children as a married couple. And to the infertile couple, many, not all, not all, but many infertile couples become fertile. Uh, at some time later in their life and actually do conceive. And they are in a relationship that would welcome the blessing of a child that could come as a fruit of their sexual union. So the point I'm trying to make is the procreative function is still relevant or present um, as, as, a, as a purpose for our sexual union in a way that it would not be for uh, in an adulterous relationship or a fornicating relationship so procreation so so consummation of marriage procreation number 3 love now, somebody's glad I'm talking about that, because last week I was talking about sexual intercourse as a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, that it sort, of rec- it sort of recognized, and it wasn't like the most romantic moment in the history uh, of our church, but I was saying that is, that is a reason. Uh, but th- it is for love as well. Sex is not just for consummating the marriage, not just for procreation, but it's an ongoing expression of love between a husband and a wife. When expressed selflessly for the joy of one's spouse, sex is the most intimate, private, vulnerable, personal way of expressing love. Put simply, it is physically, it is communicating in a physical way. It is a, a gift that God has given us. It is one way to communicate, the most intimate way, physically, to communicate, I love you. I'm joined to you. I'm one with you. It, our whole lives are intertwined. Our, 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 our hearts are intertwined. Our bodies are intertwined. I'm one with you. I'm committed to you. I'm devoted, lovingly devoted to you. I'm passionate about you. It's a way, to, a way to communicate. I trust you. I give myself to you, which are all expressions of love, right? A loving relationship. So sex and love in the marriage relationship go together. Now, in the creation account, we don't see that. The word love is not used uh, in the creation account, but I think it's hinted at. One place I think it's hinted at is Adam's response when he sees Eve. You know, he's put to sleep, God removes a rib, creates the woman, and then he he responds in what is verse it's the first language of any human on the planet when he sees eve and it's a poem and in my bible in the version of the esv ESV i have it's set apart like a verse it's literally written like a poem like a verse because it is he says this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man Uh, this is he's excited this is an exclamation point This is a a passionate statement. He really, really is thrilled with what he sees, especially since he has just named the entire animal kingdom. And though she would be beautiful on her own, uh, certainly she is far more beautiful uh, than any uh, other creature, which he has just seen them all. And so he, he speaks in this sort of passionate way towards her. And there is a I think you could say a love at first sight. I understand that love takes maturing and you can't really love someone you don't know, but I think he really loved her and he didn't know her yet. You know, he was really thrilled about her. If there ever was a valid case of love at first sight, it was, it was Genesis 2, uh, 20, 20, uh 3 in that verse. So I think it's communicated somewhat there. And then I also think it's communicated in what God says in verse 24. He shall hold fast, to his wife he shall he shall stick with her he shall uh, he shall you know um, uh, he shall cleave to her it 's a covenantal word of commitment, and love means a lot of things, but one of the foundational meanings of love is a commitment of joining life together. Uh, that, that isn't circumstantial or isn't conditional. I love you unconditionally. I'm, I'm for, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. That's love. We, people take that vow at their wedding ceremony, saying it's not just I'm up here because I feel all gooey about you. You may feel all gooey, and that's a good thing. We welcome the emotional passion that comes uh, you know, to, to a couple, so we welcome that. But they're not just saying that. They're saying, really, the vow of my love to you is the vow of till death do us part. And you get that in this hold fast. It's a covenantal sticking together. So I think in the beginning, though the word love is not used, it's there. uh, It's 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 there sort of implicitly or in the shadows of the text. Um, But if we really want to see how love and sex are connected, we can go elsewhere in the Bible and look at the Song of Songs. I'm not going to talk a lot about it tonight because I'm going to teach a fair bit on it. I think we're going to take at least two weeks in looking at the uh, Song of Songs. Um, it's called the Song of Solomon, or sometimes it's called the Song of Songs, which means the, the, like, the best song ever is what Song of Songs means. Of all the songs, this is the best. That's what it means. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks uh, looking at it. And the focus of the entire book, at least at a horizontal level, describes the love of a woman and a man uh, together. Uh, And it is really the story of a passionate longing, actually the passionate longing for sexual union before they're married, which is, is not consummated until they're married. Uh, and then the passionate longing to be together once they are married, and the passionate celebration of their union, uh, you know, once they are married. One of the things that I hadn't thought about till recently about the Song of Songs is that it, it points back in many ways to the Genesis, the creation of sex in Genesis. Ian Dugid, in a commentary, which I'll, I'll bring out uh, when we teach on this, but in a commentary on a Song of Songs, he said this, In the song, we have an idealized presentation of mutual love between a man and a woman as it was designed to be at creation. Themes of the Garden of Eden abound in the song. And you'll see that. There's a lot of talk about the garden is a central image of the woman's sexuality in the, in the poem. So there's the Garden of Eden stuff everywhere. Abound in the song. Here we are confronted with love as it was intended to be in the beginning. The uninhibited celebration of the idealized love of the man and the woman, provides a model for us of how love was intended to be from the start. So love and, sexual, the, the, uh, love and the sexual relationship are present throughout. But here, here's a couple of verses in chapter 8 that just speak of love, for instance, uh, from this couple. Set me as a seal. This is 8-6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your lo- arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes or flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. You cannot drown out love. It will will survive. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so, a statement, you can't buy. If you gave everything you could, you could not buy the value of of love, So it's a book that speaks throughout of love. And actually, the word love, at least in one instance that's repeated, is used synonymously with sex. So uh, the, the, the gal, the Shulamite woman in the letter, and it's a, it's, we'll explain this when we get to it if you're unfamiliar with it, but it's a series of poems that are spoken from uh, a man to a woman and then a woman uh, to a man. But in it, she says in chapter 2, verse 7, and this is repeated three different times in different poems in the letter. uh, She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And if you look at the context, what she's saying is, don't prematurely have sex. She's speaking of a relationship that she's longing to. The whole, they're not married and it opens up, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I mean, at the beginning, she's desiring to be with this guy, but they're, they're not. They're restraining that until they are marriage, married. And she says to this uh, kind of chorus of ladies that are with her, she says to this chorus, do not awaken this love before it's time. Do not be involved uh, prematurely. Uh, with someone that you are not married to. So in marriage, sex is an expression of romantic love, uh, erotic love, but it all flows through the biblical idea of love, uh, which is God's love, an agape love, which is patient and kind and sacrificial it's a love that focuses on pleasing the other. You see that in the Song of Songs and elsewhere. So even in the Bible, when we're not talking about sexual love per se, the foundation of the nature of love is still to characterize the, uh, the sexual relationship. 1 Corinthians 13, for instance, uh, that's, that's really sound bedroom advice. Love is patient. You know, love is kind. Um, so so love is focused on the other, we see in the Bible. And so love and sex go together. Hollinger, in the book that I held up to you a minute ago, uh, he said, in a covenant marriage, sex is not making love, it is giving love. And uh, making love is not a bad term, but, uh, but it's a giving love is what he's saying. It's not something you're creating through the act. It's something that you are extending of yourself To the other because marriage uh, represents a sacrificial love and is even a picture of the gospel that a husband's to love his wife as Christ loves the church because it's that sacrificial picture of love that is to characterize the uh, sexual relationship as well that that sex is about a giving and an expression not only of a union uh, but a devotion to the other in that union the one flesh relationship uh, is not what can you do for me to enter into my world it 's not that kind of love, but it 's what can I do for you to enter into your world and and sexually, how can I relate in a way that pleases and blesses uh, and serves you as a matter of fact, in First Corinthians seven, Paul makes some culturally radical statements. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about the sexual relationship and how it is to be. Now, again, he did not use the word love here, but it is the idea that we see throughout the New Testament of love, that it, love is about the other. Uh, he says that each, the w- husband and the wife, are to use their body to, in essence, serve or to please the other. The husband is to give his wife her conjugal rights, is how the ESV uh, translates it, which is she has the right uh, to his body he actually says uh, actually says his the, the guy's body is not his own. His wife has authority over the husband's body and the husband has authority over the wife's body. What's he what's he talking about? He's saying that your body for for sexual purposes is is for the blessing of the other. It's to express love to the other, for the other. And this is absolutely groundbreaking that he says the woman has authority over the husband's body because they lived in a culture where women were in sometimes even viewed as the possession of a husband. And somewhat in the in the Greek and the Roman culture, love and sex in marriage were divorced. Love was divorced from marriage. You got married to someone, sometimes arranged, to have children and then you had a mistress on the side for the purpose of love and sexual pleasure and all this kind of stuff. But you just sort of had a, had a, a spouse to have a family with and to have children with. And he's making radical statements. He's saying, no, husbands, you, you're, you are to serve your wife. She has conjugal rights is what he says. He, she has the right to sexual union with you. So don't deprive her. And, and wives, don't deprive your husbands. It goes both ways, he says. Why, why does he talk that way? Because sex reflects love. And love, biblically, is always about prefer, uh, per, uh, preferring and pleasing the other. Love is always about pleasing and preferring the other. And that's why when Paul talks about sex and this relationship in marriage, he, without using the word love, he is describing love the preference of the other, the serving of the other, the giving of oneself to the other to say, I don't, I don't own myself. I'm not, you know, I'm not ruling over myself in this way in some kind of way that I'm demanding my rights. I'm giving up my rights to serve and bless the husband to the wife and the wife to the, to the husband. And then he makes again that very culturally radical unheard of statement that the wife has sexual rights that her husband is to love her and Expresses love through sex uh, as one way, reflective of their union, their care, their love, their tenderness, and and everything else. So, love. So, consummation of the marriage and the ongoing sort of deepening of the one flesh union. Uh, Procreation. You you, you can't have uh, children, you know, without the uh, relation, sexual relationship, and that's. One of the purposes, love, it's an expression of a love, the kind of love that's a sacrificial and not a selfish love. The fourth purpose would be pleasure. Pleasure, and this is certainly biblical, that uh, that sex is not just for procreation as if it's some kind of duty to create the next generation, but it is for pleasure. And I think some of the most unfortunate caricatures of God in our culture are that god is somehow opposed to pleasure that that god is somehow uh, you know opposed to anyone enjoying for a couple enjoying themselves sexually that he's just like well if that's got to happen i guess i'm going to kind of close my eyes and you know uh as if he's embarrassed by that or if he's he created that uh, it, it, he thought up pleasure the, no no pornographer thought up pleasure Um, No one having illicit sex with multiple partners, thinking they're having the time of their life, thought up pleasure. God was the one who thought up pleasure. But it's sad that many people who don't know the Lord assume that God is just against all kinds of pleasure. Uh, And that can be because... Sometimes the church has not done a good job representing God and representing sexuality. We've been very much about what is not allowed. Let's make sure everybody knows what they can't do. And we're going to tell them about it all the time. Instead of emphasizing what's the purpose of sex and let's get it in its right context and let's go for it. That's what the church should be saying. For the glory of God, let's be having uh, uh, sex for the glory of God. Uh, and let's be cherishing and enjoying the gift and growing in it. And uh, let's uh, let's be celebrating marital love and covenant uh, fidelity, instead of just saying can't do this, can't do that, can't do that. And just you know, so sometimes it's the church's imbalanced emphasis on what the Bible teaches. Um, that's one reason. I think the other reason is sometimes people who don't know the Lord are very selective in their hearing. So it could be both. But that's what many who don't know the Lord think. It's, it's characterized in this statement. This is a, uh, not a famous statement, but a, a statement that you can find out there by a, uh, uh, by a country folk uh, singer-songwriter guy named Butch Hancock. This is what he said. He grew up in Lubbock. This is what he said. Life in Lubbock, Texas taught me two things. One, God loves you, and you're going to burn in hell. That's the first thing he said, which is tragic. Number two, sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth, and you should save it for someone you love. That—that's—that was what—that's what he's saying. Now, if that's serious, what he's saying, th- there's a there's a nugget of seriousness there. He said, "Here's what I learned from the church. You told me Jesus loves me, but he really doesn't. You know, he's not not really doing anything to, for me. He's just going to torment me. So God's really against me. I heard that God's against me." Uh, And the second thing I heard is sex is really bad, so save it and share it with someone you love. That's what he said he learned from growing up in Texas. So I I don't know, you know, I don't know if he's being facetious and to what degree it's true, but there would be people who would say that, that the church teaches that sex is an awful, dirty thing um, when the Bible teaches that it's a gift of God that one of its purposes, not the only, but one of its purposes would be pleasure. You know, without any diagrams or being graphic uh, at all, could I I just say this about creation, that there are parts of the male and female anatomy that serve no other biological function but pleasure. Why? Because God is a kind God who, who gave a pleasurable experience to consummate a marriage, and to confirm the ongoing one flesh nature of the marriage. And to have children. And to express love. He gave pleasure as part of the deal. And that is just a merciful, gracious God. He could have done anything. He could have said, eat that plant and you will get pregnant. Okay, eat that. that you want to have a baby? You eat a plant. He could have done whatever he wanted to. To come up with it. He could have written the Bible and said, be Fruitful and multiply, but only do this union thing when when you want to have a child. And so you d- do that six times if you have six children. Do it once if you have one child. I mean, he could have done it that way. It's just procreative. But he didn't do that. God uh, God gives as a gift for a pleasure. And so you see this in the Bible, that in the Scripture, uh, the sexual union is, uh, in part, pleasurable emotionally, physically, spiritually uh, as well. The Bible is is opposed to what the, what some, sometimes in the early church you saw this sort of an asceticism that if you don't indulge in any kinds of pleasure, that that's more holy. Uh, clearly, there's pleasures in the Bible that uh, would be physically pleasurable that are forbidden. Clearly, that's in the Bible, but not, not marriage, not sexual union within marriage. And so there's people in Paul's day who said, you can't marry. You want to follow Jesus? You can't be married, which would mean you can't. There's no sex. You will be uh, the really holy people will not marry and engage in something like that. And in first Timothy four, Paul just says, that's nonsense. Is that that is not a mark of holiness that someone would say, I really want to be holy. So I'm not, you know, if a person's called to singleness, that's different. That is a very holy calling that the Lord gives some people, uh, a, the gift of singleness. So that would be, but these people weren't saying that these people were saying, you know, don't be married. Don't be married because you, you want to you be austere. You want to restrict yourself. You want to withhold uh, pleasures, and that's godly. And that's, that's just not the truth. So while God designs a specific context for sex, marriage between one man and one woman, um, in that context, it's to be enjoyed with pleasure. It's, sex is not dirty in marriage. It's not bad, it's not shameful, it's not embarrassing, Uh, it's good, and we are to enjoy the good gift of God with freedom, uh, and with abandon, and that is what the scripture models for us in the Song of Songs. Again, I'm going to teach through this, but let me just read a few verses, if you have a Bible, you can look at this with me. Uh, Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 10, and you can read this, this is when they're getting married, uh, and... It's a lot of metaphorical language. It's veiled, and I'm not going to unveil and give details in some kind of graphic way. You'll be able to track with it, I think. But it, it is veiled language, and it's meant to be veiled. But uh, I will say this: the metaphor of the garden in this passage and throughout the letter is, is the woman's sexuality. So there is there is that. Uh, I will I will give that an interpretive clue, which is throughout. But he says this in in four ten. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. It's not really a sister, but that was a term of affection. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choice's fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and all the trees of frankincense myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams of Lebanon. Awake o north wind and come o south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Then she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the others say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, drunkenness on alcohol with alcohol is sinful in the scripture to be drunk by drinking too much alcohol. But drunkenness on their sexual union is encouraged and celebrated. It compares it to intoxication. The exact same language about intoxication is used in Proverbs 5. This is what a dad says to his son to think about his future marriage. Proverbs 5, he says, don't follow the adulteress. The adulteress, he says, is literally going to lure you into her bed. That's what he talks about. Very clearly, she's going to lure you into, your be- into her bed, but don't do that. Uh, he says in verse uh, 15, 515, drink water from your own cistern. Okay, so drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? It's, it's what he's saying by that is drink what You know, you have a sister in a well. Drink from your well. That is, be with your wife. Don't be, you know, getting water and spreading it out everywhere is what he's saying. S- sleeping with various people. Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Same language, intoxication. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So I'm not being graphic here at all. not seeking to be. I'm just trying to be tell you what the scripture says in the poetic language before he's describing a union that involved taste touch smell every sensation every sense uh sensual sensation was described as he came to his garden uh the garden and celebrated and was drunk in love at the garden here he's saying this lady's going to try to intoxicate you but don't be intoxicated by an adulterer be intoxicated with your wife and be filled with delight by her breasts and not the breast of someone out there. Don't do that. Embrace your wife. Don't be embraced don't be embracing the adulteress is what he is saying in this passage. Let her fill you with delight, is what he's saying. So it's an intoxication. It's a pleasurableness. This is a purpose within marriage. In Hollinger's book, he he says this. He says, um, this is with the wife of your youth, we just read. He said, in marital sex, we experience pleasure that is physical, but also emotional and spiritual for true pleasure is far more than a tingling of nerve endings. Yet the tingling of nerve endings and the physical side of pleasure is part of the gift. Its fullness, however, is experienced in relationship to other human pleasures, such as the joy of commitment security, fidelity, and a deep consolation that this is God's doing. So he's saying the real joy, pleasure of sex in marriage is not just a physical pleasure, which is momentary, but it is the joy of commitment. It is the joy of trust. It is the joy of security that says, this person's not with me tonight and with someone else tomorrow. It is the The joy of that union its the consolation. He says the deep consolation that this is God's doing. That's what God wants the married couple to experience in their sexual relationship. Tingling of nerve endings? Yes, believers and unbelievers have nerve endings. uh, Humans have that. But beyond that, there is to be a depth of pleasure and joy that is commitment, security, union, and the sense that that God did this. This is a good thing. From the Lord, the pleasure that comes there. So that that is uh, enough on that topic. I need to wrap up. So here we go. So we've got uh, consummation is the first thing we talked about. Uh, then we talked about procreation. And we talked about love. Then we talked about pleasure. And then there's one overarching purpose of sex. And that is the glory of God. Um, our sexuality is given us for the glory of God we are to please the lord and to glorify him and i think there's two ways really quickly that we glorify the lord with our sexuality the first is through gratitude through gratitude cs lewis says that pleasures and he wasn't just talking about sex but all pleasures in life that we have pleasures are shafts of the glory as it strikes our sensibility so when we uh, even eating a great meal would be a pleasure he's talking about when i eat a great meal there is a it's, it's like a picture. It's like a, it's something that's a pleasure that is revealing God's glory in a sense is what he's saying. And he says, make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. Whatever pleasure God gives us, we are to thank him for it. Ecclesiastes te- teaches that pleasure is not just from God, but the ability to enjoy is a gift of God. So we thank the Lord for everything he provides. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. James 1 17 says, so we want to take the pleasure that God gives us in life, not just sexual, but all and follow it back up to him with gratitude and praise. Ephesians five, very interesting says to avoid sexual immorality, uh, which would be sex outside of marriage, avoid sexual immorality. And he says, don't even have foolish talk or crude joking. So don't make sex, you know, jokes about sexuality. Um, don't, don't make those kind, don't make locker room humor as a Christian. Uh, don't talk that way, but the giving of thanks. So, and that's in the context of talking about sex. He says, don't tell dirty jokes, thank God for sex. That, that's what Ephesians 5 teaches. So there's a gratitude that we are to give to the Lord for it. Now, in a room this size... People in our church, we have a wide variety of views and experiences and feelings concerning our sexuality and I talked about that last week. I talked about the the ends of the spectrum of apathy to addiction. you know we, and, and, mo- and most are somewhere in between in summary on either perhaps either polarity there either end of the spectrum. so we have a wide range but I, I just wanted to say this to anyone in the room who who would just frankly say as a married person that maybe sex has lost its uh, appeal to you uh, or your interests. Perhaps you're married and you say, man, I do not see what the big deal is. It's on every television show, every song, every, everybody's now we're doing a whole series on this. Are you kidding me? Uh, we're going to talk about this for like eight weeks. I mean, or what, however long I, and I just don't have an interest. I'm married, you say, but I'm just not that interested. Someone else says, well, I, I, it's difficult for me to even discuss it, given my past. Or someone else says, well, based on my past, maybe you heard the same thing in Lubbock, Texas, that the country singer heard, that you say, from my past, it just seems like it's something dirty. It's just something bad. Uh, I can't really, even as a married person, can't enjoy this. You talk about pleasure. I, I can't even get that, uh, that idea in my head because it's, uh, it just seems like there's something wrong about about this. Um, there might be somebody else who says, well, it just feels, yeah, I heard the 1 Corinthians 7 passage you read. It just feels like an obligation rather than a joy. Sexual relationship and marriage feels more obligatory uh, than it does something that I celebrate and look forward to and, and makes our one flesh union closer as a couple. I, I don't experience that. I, I can't counsel through a sermon each of those different people um, who are probably represented in the room. Uh, so you're not alone if you feel those things. But, but I can say this, that I would start with sex is given by God as a gift before the fall in Genesis 1 and 2. He created the sexual union. The Song of Songs is sort of an idealized poetic picture of what that relationship could be. And so it is a gift from the Lord. And I think we start by thanking God because every good gift comes from him. We thank God for things we don't even think are a gift sometimes. But we know they're from him. So you start by thanking the Lord because this is not an issue between you and your spouse. This is an issue between you and God to begin with. It's between you and God. And so if you're in that place tonight, God wants you to glorify him by starting to thank him for the gift as a married person of, uh, of sex. Others may say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am on the other end. Sex is not gross to me. I don't think of it as sinful. It's not obligatory. I think about it all the time. I'm on the other end. I'm not apathetic I am very pro sex. Let's just say I'm on the other end of the spectrum. And uh, I would say to you, the same thing is you need to thank the Lord and you need to ensure that you're not worshiping the gift, but you're worshiping the giver that that sex hasn't become an idol because it can become an idol to us. I'm going to talk about that next week. It can become an idol. So the person who's apathetic needs to thank the Lord for the gift. And the person that's obsessed with sex itself needs to go to the Lord as well. And say, Lord, I'm worshiping you and not a gift. And, uh, and if, I'm, I, if I'm making something an idol to me, then Lord, please help me with that. So thanking the Lord. It's a, sex is a wonderful gift, but sex is a terrible God. And if it is our God, it will leave us every time dissatisfied longing for something else. Because you will not find married, single, whatever, divorced, whatever. Widower, widow, uh, teenager, everyone in the room. Sex will not be the end all God that will provide everything that the culture advertises it will provide. It will not. Uh, That's why G.K. Chesterton said that everyone who knocks, every man who knocks on a brothel is looking for God because they're looking for an experience that will be everything to them, that will satisfy them, and only God satisfies. He gives gifts to us, which we enjoy and tre- and treasure. Point four was pleasure, okay? Wonderful, but it is sex is, cannot be our God. It will, it will, it'll, it's a ter- sex is a terrible God. So thanksgiving, and then the second thing is obedience, and I need to be done. Goodness gracious, I just looked at the clock. I need to be done. Uh, though on this topic, you guys are a little more patient than if I was preaching on something else, perhaps. Uh, so, um, so, uh, uh the other one would be obedience. We glorify God through our obedience. So the Bible generally says we are to glorify God. First uh, Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, live all your life to the glory of God. But we don't have to just say sex is one thing in our lives. So that's under everything to the glory of God. Yes, it is. But the Bible singles out sex. It doesn't just put it in the category of everything. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. And the whole section of the chapter is talking about sexual immorality. He's talking to the Corinthians, the men are having sex with prostitutes down at the pagan temples. And he's saying, stop having sex with prostitutes. We talked about this last week, because you're making yourself one flesh with them. And then he says, your body belongs to Jesus Therefore, glorify God with your body. What does that mean? It means whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever you are, live out your sexuality in the way God designed it. So if you're a single person, that means that you live out until you are married. You you live out uh, uh, this part of your life. You live in chastity is what he calls us to a purity, a chastity until you're married. And if you're married, then you are to walk out your sexual relationship with your spouse only. Your spouse only, but in in both cases, we are obeying the Lord as those who have been bought with a price. His require he spells out very very clearly his requirements for how we are to live out our lives uh, sexually, and uh, we want, and we're trying to think deeply about this. What are the purposes of sex? I didn't just start with okay. Here's like a list of all the stuff everybody can't do. Here's a list of everything all this stuff everybody can do. Everybody got the rules. Go team! You know, we're not doing that. We're looking, we're trying to start with what's the purpose? Because that, then all the other things make a lot of sense when we understand the purpose. So that's what we're talking about. So we, we want to obey the Lord that glorifies him. Um, There's grace. There's his grace to help us where we failed and forgive us and to empower us to be more conformed to his image. We have all failed, at least in our heart and beyond that. Um, Many of us and and there's grace for forgiveness and there's power for change with the Lord. So if you're aware, as we talked about this, I'm going to close with the same quote I did last week. If you're aware of sexual sin in your life or you're aware that, boy, these purposes are not things I've thought about or seen, the Lord's convicted me of something as a single person or a married person, I want to encourage you, the gospel is not for the sexually upright, but the sexually fallen. Jesus dies on a cross for sexual sin. He never committed any sexual sin. He was perfect. And yet he died for our lusts. Uh, He died for our fantasies and imaginations that do not glorify him. He died for uh, romantic relationships with peop- married people having romantic relationships with someone they're not married to he died for uh, the urge and the act of viewing pornography uh, he, died for, he died for every sexual sin that we see in the scripture and if we come to him he forgives us and he will give us power to change and sometimes it's a, it's a lifetime of change but it starts with acknowledging I need the good news of the gospel afresh to me. I need the hope that comes from the Lord. And so whether you're a single person really struggling or whether you're a married, and, and message to the single people, there's married people that really, really struggle just like you do. It's not that the married people have no problems here. It's just absolutely not. So whether you're single or married, you could be struggling tremendously with the issues we're talking about tonight. Well, let's come to the Lord. Let's ask for his power and his grace to change us. And then I'm gonna pray. And then uh, we're not gonna have a ministry time up here tonight, but you find someone that you can talk to a mature friend and let them know, A, your small group leader, one of the pastors. Um, if you're a woman, a mature woman of God that's in the church that you can trust, um, or you, if you're new and don't know anybody, you want to talk to a woman, you can come to one of the pastors and say, I'd like to speak to a woman about something and we can direct you to someone who you'd be more appropriate and more comfortable speaking with. We can help you with that. So go to someone and get some help, get some prayer, and let's, uh, let's trust the Lord that he wants, to, uh, he wants to help us all and wants to, um, he wants to give us grace in our station in life and he wants to give us joy in these areas as well. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.